All right, so we're in the book of Acts, and we've been preaching through it this summer in many ways to kind of catch the fire that the early church had as it goes from Jerusalem out into the ends of the earth. And so um, let me ask you something. If you, do any of you guys like to just instigate things? Like, like you like to maybe just needle people? If you ever want to get a response from people, throw out this controversial question. Does pineapple belong on pizza? I know, we don't shy away from the hard truths here. I found pineapple on pizza. There's not a lot of people in the middle ground. There are some who believe that Hawaiian pizza is God's gift to mankind. And there are others that if you bring pineapple anywhere near their pizza, they might fight you. And if this doesn't work, you could always throw out this. Cats make wonderful pets. And you'll find the cat people, and they will love you. And the 95% of other people will say, that's ridiculous. Some of you guys are like, how dare you say that about cats? Well, my email is kelsey at rockhillcc.org. If I've offended you in any way, Kelsey has now taken on that mantle to handle all your disagreements. Now... We can joke about things like this, but often there are people that even the mention of their name, there are, it, it polarizes us. Like LeBron James, greatest basketball player ever, or a fraud. Donald Trump, we're not even going to touch that one. Taylor Swift. These names are like, people love them or they hate them, but there's generally not a lot of middle ground when you bring up something like that. Okay, so what's the point? The same thing happens with Jesus and the message of the gospel. Love it or hate it, the message of Jesus turns the world upside down, or at least it should. One of the verses that we'll see in our story as the gospel goes to the city of Thessalonica is he says, these men have turned the world upside down with their message. See, those who... Upon hearing the good news, there are some who love Jesus and build their entire lives around him and his kingdom purposes. There's others who hear the exact same message, and they hate it. And they find Jesus to be dangerous, false, and they spend their life opposing the work of God's people. But one of the things that you rarely find in the scriptures is neutrality or apathy about Jesus. But you find that a lot in our world, don't you? That's really nice for you. Or, eh, not all that compelling. What do you mean? Jesus is claiming things that if any man simply claimed, like, that's crazy talk. He claims to be the judge of the world, the savior of the world. Do you understand that this is not a neutral message? You either are drawn to him and you love him and find your life being fulfilled by him, or you often hate him and oppose his work. One of my goals this morning is that you wouldn't leave this morning neutral about Jesus. And certainly you wouldn't leave claiming the name of Jesus, but it bearing little fruit or having almost no effect on your life because that's not what the gospel does. So let's read together. Acts 17, we're going to look at the verse... 15 verses as the gospel goes to two different cities, the city of Thessalonica and the city of Berea. We'll we'll read the first story of Thessalonica first. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, of the, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Let's just pause for a second and learn a little bit about Thessalonica. If you remember from last week in Acts chapter 16, the gospel came to Europe for the first time or more specifically Macedonia. And the city of Philippi was the first place that Paul and Silas preached the gospel and established a church on the continent of Europe. They leave from Philippi. They go through two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they settle in the city of Thessalonica. You can kind of see it up there on the map. Okay, Modern day, the city of Thessalonica is now the Macedonian city Thessaloniki. Bet you don't know how that happened. It's actually the same city, same name. Um, and, and there's not a lot of ancient ruins there because they just built the, like they've continued to live there. Like they just built new things on top of the old things. But there's a few of the ruins of the places where Paul and Silas would have went. Now this was a significant city. The, the, the ruler about 300, 350 years ago who had kind of conquered all the known world. And so that was a big deal. Also on a clear day from the city of Thessalonica, you could look and see Mount Olympus. According to the Greek religion, that's where the gods were said to have dwelled. And so it was a significant place, both for the Romans and the Greeks, but there was also a significant Jewish population there. We know this because there's a synagogue. See, not all the Jews lived in Israel and Jerusalem. Some of them were spread throughout the Roman Empire. And whenever there was more than 10 Jewish families in a particular area, they would form a synagogue. They would gather together on the Sabbath day. They would read the Old Testament law, and they would worship together. And so as was his custom, Paul goes to the, the synagogue, and it says for three different days he reasoned with them about the Christ, about Jesus. Now why would he go to the synagogue first? Well, because he's starting with low-hanging fruit, right? These are, these are worshipers of Yahweh. These are the Old Testament covenantal people of God. They're waiting for the Messiah. And so Paul comes and says, he's here. His name is Jesus. And let me tell you about him. And so for three consecutive Sabbath days, it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Now, his strategy with the Jewish people was to reason with them from the scriptures, to show them that their own texts actually point ahead to Jesus being the one that was promised. Now, scripture means in his day the Old Testament because the New Testament had yet to have been written. And so Paul is using the Bible to show his fellow Jews 
who value the Bible, who are waiting for the Messiah, he's here, and his name is Jesus. Now, this is very different than the kind of preaching he's going to do at the end of chapter 17 when he's in the city of Athens. There, as he's on the Areopagus among Greek philosophers, he's going to quote pagan Greek philosophers to establish a sense of authority with them and to point them to Jesus. But here in the synagogue, he uses the scriptures, he reasons with them that Jesus had to suffer and die and then rise from the dead. Now, this was controversial in his day. That the Messiah had to suffer and die was something that those who read the Old Testament, they just missed. They didn't see. See, to them, the Messiah, the the Christ, the anointed one, was going to come as a conquering king and a military hero, like King David of old, throw out the Romans or throw out the oppressive rule of of this Gentile regime and reestablish God's kingdom among the Jewish people. He would lead them into a military or a a political victory, and he would establish God's kingdom yet again. And yet Jesus doesn't hold any political office. Jesus doesn't lead any armies or, or really write a book or anything. In fact, Jesus come and comes and suffers in the most painful and shameful way that they could have imagined. And now Paul has the audacity to tell him, That's the Messiah. And in fact, the Messiah had to come and suffer and die. And so in reasoning with him, he would have had to answer the question, why did the Messiah have to come and suffer and die? Because in a sense, the people weren't wrong. The Messiah should bring God's kingdom and usher in a new rule and reign. And yet, what they missed is that the Messiah had to come and reconcile us to God. The Messiah had to come and offer himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinful humanity so that God's rule and reign would actually be good news. Because here's the thing. We like to think about people in terms of there's the good people and then there's the bad people. And so when God's reign comes, the good people kind of get to get ushered in with him and they rule and reign with him, but the bad people he crushes in his wake. And yet, the truth about humanity is there are no good people. Every single one of us has rebelled against our creator. We don't worship and serve him as we ought. We have broken his law. We have worshiped and served created things so that God's rule and reign apart from a suffering Messiah is actually bad news because we get crushed in his wake. Unless, of course, the Messiah came first and lived perfectly where we have failed and then as a perfect one offer himself as a substitute as an atoning sacrifice for sin, so that when God punishes Jesus, he's actually punishing my sin. He's actually pouring out his justice and his wrath on another so that his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace can extend to those who put their faith and trust in him. See, the Jewish people missed this, that the sacrificial system, that the priesthood, that all of that was actually about Jesus and that he had to come first as a suffering servant, as a sacrificial offering so that he could bear the wrath of God in our place so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Then when his rule and his reign comes, it's actually good news for us. But here's the thing. If the Messiah came and simply died, that might be inspiring, but it would actually be futile. The Messiah, after dying, must actually rise from death. 
rise in victory over Satan, sin, and even death itself. And so this is what the Apostle Paul proclaimed from the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus is the guy. He's the one. He suffered and he died as a sacrifice for sin, but he is alive and he is ruling and he is reigning and he will one day come back because he is not in the grave. He's alive. Now, we often think that Old Testament people are just kind of like naive and simplistic. And yet, how many times had a resurrection happened before this? Never. Because it didn't happen. Because we all die. And we stay dead. But Jesus didn't. That's what made him different and unique. And that's what gave hope. And so as Paul is explaining from the scriptures, he's saying the Messiah had to suffer and die, and he had to rise again. And you know the result of that preaching? It was fruitful. Some people responded. They were convinced, and they believed. They had faith in Jesus and what he had done. But not everybody. No, some began to oppose the work. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Some embraced the gospel. They were persuaded and believed. Others, not so much. They violently opposed the work of Christ. Now notice that their motives were not intellectual in nature. It wasn't that they weren't convinced that Jesus was who he claims he was. They might have not been convinced, but it says that their primary opposition was that they were jealous. They were jealous that maybe these God-fearing Greeks who hadn't fully converted to Judaism because of the cultural implications of that now are following Paul and Silas and embracing Jesus as the Messiah and being included without having to be circumcised, without having to follow the Old Testament law and all of the things. They were jealous that maybe these people who had in part probably bankrolled some of the synagogue, we're now following somebody else. So they take matters into their own hand and they begin to violently oppose. And what's their strategy? Let's build a mob. Let's find some unsavory characters, whip them up, and go and take this by force. And so they attack the house of Jason, who is most likely the one showing hospitality to Paul and Silas, and they are out for blood. They don't get Paul and Silas because they're not there for some reason, and so they take Jason out, and they're going to get their pound of flesh. Uh, Jason is exercising Christian hospitality because they didn't have hotels in their day. Now, let me just stop here. How do you know if your zeal for something has gotten a little out of hand? Here's a surefire way to know. When you begin embracing the thinking that the end justifies the means. Like if your thought process says, I'm going to start a mob. And we'll execute justice and violence that way. You're probably on the wrong side of things. Whether it's politics or religion or whatever. If you have to start justifying your methods by pointing to the end result... Even if your methods go against everything that you say you believe in, you know that you've embraced the wrong way of thinking. Brothers and sisters, the end doesn't justify the means. In fact, if you were to go in human history and look at all of the atrocities that have taken place, most likely underneath there among people who say they're on the side of good, underneath these atrocities is the thinking that, oh, 
but on the other end, it will be good. And that the ends that are good justify the means of wiping out a whole bunch of people that I don't agree with. Or doing things in a completely unethical way. Guys, as God's people, that is not what we are called to do. Because here's why. God cares not only about the end, but he cares about how we get there. He cares about the means as well. And don't let the thinking that the end justifies the mean lead you into all kinds of wickedness. Whether that's at work, in promotions, whether that's in politics, whether that's in school boards, whether that's in class, and and whether that's in sport, whatever it is, the end doesn't justify the means. God cares about how you act and not only the results. Okay, so look at how they treat Jason. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason out and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, guilty by association. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, so like posting bail, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's interesting that the accusations and the thought process toward the Christians here is very similar to the way in which Jesus himself was condemned, right? Jesus claims to be a king even though we all know that Caesar is king. They are a threat to Caesar and the the hard-fought peace that Rome has fought for because he's claiming to be another king in opposition to the one that we know is king. And now all of a sudden the the city authorities who are like, oh, this is a little petty Jewish squabble, get very interested in the result, don't they? Because heaven forbid in that day you disrupt the peace of Caesar or threaten him in any way. See, they lived during a time called the the Pax Romana. During Caesar Augustus' reign after he had vanquished his enemy, it kind of ushered in about a hundred years of peace called the Pax Romana in which trade was, was, was opened up and free in which um, there was relatively no wars. Or, and, and in order to protect this hard-won peace, Rome's approach was any opposition or any resistance, we're going to crush it. We're going to obliterate it. Anyone who would dare raise their voice or claim to be an authority outside of Rome, we will wipe out. They dealt pretty quickly with Jesus, didn't they? And so this line of thinking that they've turned the world upside down and they follow a different king than Caesar, which is true, we do. Our ultimate loyalty lies not with our American country, but ultimately with Jesus and his kingdom. Ooh, now I'm starting to meddle a little bit. Was a threat. And so that gets on the ire of the city authorities. But what what blows my mind, and I've been hinting at it a lot, is It's that phrase, they turn the world upside down with their teaching. See, true gospel preaching doesn't allow us to be neutral about Jesus. He either is who he claims to be or he's not. And gospel preaching, love it or hate it, it turns the world upside down. (laughs) It's interesting, of all the false charges that they could trump up, this one actually rings true, that they had turned the world upside down. In a few short decades, this Jesus who was crucified but then raised again has now infiltrated not just Asia Minor and the Holy Land, but now it's getting its tendrils into Europe and it's going to end up in Rome itself. 
Jesus and his message of forgiveness and salvation, his name, turns our world upside down. It subverts human systems of power and authority, and it gives us a new way to live. So love it or hate it. Don't be neutral about the gospel. Don't hear about Jesus and respond, eh. Or heaven forbid, hear about Jesus and respond, oh, that's, that's good for you, but not for me. No, Jesus doesn't actually give us that option. Am I saying we should not be a tolerant people? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the message of the gospel is a little incendiary. Jesus claims an authority over us that either is really bold or really true. The hostility of Thessalonica and the, the Thessalonians forced Paul and Silas to leave in the middle of the night, and they flee to a nearby city called Berea. And even though there's a similar response by the Thessalonians, the Bereans are commended by Luke for how they respond with their openness and willingness to consider the claims of Christ. Let's look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, as was their custom, right? That's what they do. Low-hanging fruit, fruit, low fruit first. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed." Oh, those Thessalonians, they really didn't like Paul or Silas or their message. But the Bereans, we read they're different. We read that these Jews were more noble than those of Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They listened. They checked it out. They went back to the scriptures did the Christ have to suffer and die? Yes, he did. Did the Christ have to rise again in resurrection over Satan's sin and death? Yes, he did. Is Jesus the Christ? Yes, he is. You see, Jesus doesn't just arrive on the scene in a vacuum to say whatever he wants, to do whatever he wants. No, he came into a story that had been unfolding for thousands of years. And he fulfilled all the promises about him. Some of these were mysteries that were hidden in plain sight, but he fulfilled them and he became the Savior. Not one that they fully expected, but certainly the one that they needed and you and I need today. Now, if you do a Google search for Berean Baptist Church, you'll probably get a million or so responses, or at least thousands of different responses. It's one of the most popular names for a Baptist church. Why? Well, one, alliteration is punchy and memorable, right? But two, we look at this church in Berea and we see this is a commendable church. We want to be a church like that. We want to respond and love the word of God like them. We want to be discerning like them because they love the word of God. They received the word of God and they made sure what was being said and taught and preached actually lined up with the word of God, which forces us to ask ourselves similar questions. Do you love God's word? Like, do you love God's word? Like, Really love it so that you actually read it and maybe meditate on it or think on it and actually begin to do it and see that in it is life. Do you receive God's word as God's word? Like you embrace what it says plainly and it's plain meaning. 
And when there's a contradiction between you and between God's word, the default of your life is not to trust your own intuition and feelings, but rather to trust God's word because it's far more trustworthy. Now, easier said than done, right? We tend to think that, no, I got things figured out or my emotions are often in check, and yet the reality is the Bible's going to provoke me sometimes. And when it happens, I can tell you, it's not the Bible that needs to change. It's me. And that's actually good news. Because the God of the universe has made himself known and he showed us the way to truly live. And in his grace and in his mercy, he's given us his word. So that we're not like grasping around in the dark, wondering what we should be doing. But actually he tells us. In addition, like the Bereans, do you make sure that when you hear someone teach or preach God's word, it actually squares with what God's word says? See, I, I realize in doing this that I'm inviting accountability for myself as a preacher. Or, or anybody who stands up here and teaches or preaches God's word, that, that we actually need to be discerning as God's people, that we actually need to have our Bibles open to say, oh yeah, what he's saying is actually what is being said here. I'm asking that every time you listen to a podcast or YouTube or go to a, a website and hear Bible teaching, that you have your Bible open and you're actually discerning about it. Because, let me tell you, at no other time in human history has there been more good Bible teaching available to you that's free and accessible anytime you want it. But also, at no other time in human history has there been as much bad Bible teaching available to you anytime you want it for free. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? It's a great gift and also a great danger. And so as God's people, we need to be discerning and only say what God's word is saying. Now, I had to learn this really young as a pastor because I started preaching regularly at age 21. And let me just say, 21-year-olds don't have a lot of inherent authority in themselves, right? They shouldn't. And I shouldn't have, right? And so if I'm going to stand up and preach as a 21-year-old, the only kind of authority that I have is to say, this is what God's word says, right? This is what God's word says. And in fact, that's how you preach with authority, whether you're 21 or now 41. It's not me that has authority. It's actually God's word that has authority over you. And so uh, my authority as a pastor is derivative based on what this actually says. And so what that means for us as a church, I think, is that where the Bible and the scriptures are clear, we ought to be clear without apology, However, where the Bible or the scriptures is not all that clear, maybe we shouldn't say, thus says the Lord. And claim an authority that we're maybe not all that certain about. You see, if everything is a big deal, and every doctrine is an issue of essentials, another value that God has, that we live in unity, tends to go flying out the window. As a church, we want to be clear on the things that the scriptures are clear about. And we still want to teach the things that maybe are a little unclear or that Christians do disagree about because those things do matter for our lives, but maybe we shouldn't say them in the same way. Maybe we should say them a little softer. Of I think this is what it's saying, or this is my understanding of how that applies or, or what that means. Do you see how that's different? And if we're going to have any hope at unity... We've got to do that. We've got to be clear where the Bible is clear and maybe a little softer where the Bible is not. 
It's not that those things don't matter. It's just maybe they're not as black and white as we like to think they are. The Bereans are commendable because their minds are open, but they're discerning. And the result is that they come to the conclusion that what Paul is preaching about Jesus is true. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. See, when you listen and discern and test what is said in light of the scriptures, you will see that Jesus is who he says he is. You'll see that God's word fits together in such a beautiful and coherent way. You'll see that it is not only true, but it is actually life. It is honest about life. It is helpful for life. And it tells a better story about your life and our life together that gives meaning and purpose and direction. Now, this teaching and this discerning and this studying didn't last long because the mob from Thessalonica hears about it. And they come, and Paul is forced to leave after just a short time. Now, Timothy and Silas have a little lower profile, and so they're able to stay for a little longer and establish the church. But Paul is sent on the way to Athens, and next week we're going to see Paul preach there, and it sounds a lot different, let me just tell you, than him preaching in the synagogue. But for this week, what do we learn from these two stories in Thessalonica and Berea. First, the gospel of Jesus turns the world upside down. Love it or hate it, just don't be apathetic about it. Jesus' claims about himself are expansive. He either is who he claims to be or he is dangerous. And one of my great frustrations is just kind of the pandering approach of our culture of, that's nice for you. That's nice for you. But it has no bearing on my life. Now, Jesus either is who he claims to be, the savior of the world, the judge of the world, or he's not. He's either of utmost importance or of very little importance. See, the people who embrace this in the story have their worlds turned upside down, and it costs them something significant. And it will us as well. More on that later. Second, Don't ever fall into the thinking that the end justifies the means. That is dangerous thinking. And so if you see your thought patterns moving in that direction, stop. God has surrounded you with other believers. Maybe that's a great time to bring others in to help you discern and to think clearly. Because the ends don't justify the means. God cares about both. Third, do you love God's word? And if so... If you love God's word, how have you integrated the consumption of and thought about God's word into your life? Maybe the the really practical thing that you need to take home today is to just set aside time every day to spend time in God's word, to be shaped and formed by it. Because here's the truth that I've learned. If God's word is not shaping your mind, something else is. See, the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I realize it's necessary for me to gather with God's people every single week. You know why? Because there are thousands of messages every week that are trying to get me to worship something other than God. Do you feel that? And I find that actually gathering together with God's people is a great encouragement, but I actually can't just rely on that. I actually need to spend time with him every single day being captivated by the one who actually satisfies me, or all of the other messages will get more and more and more intriguing. You know the best way to say no to temptation? Find something else that's more compelling. You know the way to say no to false worship and idolatry? Actually be satisfied by the Lord. Actually be shaped by him. You see, if God's word is not shaping and forming your life, something else is 
And that's just the reality. You are created to worship, and you will worship something. The opposite of a Christian is not an atheist, but rather an idolater who finds their satisfaction in lesser things rather than God. But Jesus sets us free to find our satisfaction in God, to worship the the one that truly satisfies, the living water that quenches our deepest thirst, the bread of life that satisfies our deepest hunger. And his name is Jesus. Fourth, be discerning when it comes to those who preach and teach the Bible and what you listen to. Not everyone who sounds good is good. There's access to so much teaching, good and bad. Be discerning. And I mean that not just for you as an individual, but this is where the community of people are so helpful. Because sometimes you just get off. We all do. And we need other people to speak into our lives or to say, ah, that's quite a jump from there to there. Or, you know what, that's a new idea that hasn't been taught in 2,000 years. I'm guessing God didn't wait 2,000 years to really reveal that to his people. Finally, fifth, we see that when the gospel is preached and taught, opposition takes place. Guys, I think opposition is coming. More and more, I believe that. And you just need to be ready for it. When Paul shares the gospel, he's opposed and that opposition is often violent. Um, we've lived in a culture and a society that's been, that's been in many ways shaped by the gospel or at least Christian values. So for a long time in our country, we've kind of inhabited a very privileged position and place in that most people actually look to us for, oh, that's what the good life looks like or those are the people that have things figured out. That's switched. That's no longer the case. Often we're actually seen by our culture now as the ones that are impeding progress. We are the bigots, the ones who won't get on, in line with, with the way things are going. And, and that actually turns up a little bit of the cultural heat, doesn't it? But I want to encourage you that opposition to Christians and the gospel has actually been normative for most of human history. Okay? It's, that's, that's normal. And, and most of the time when that happens, actually the gospel thrives because Jesus is compelling in and of itself. The, the, the church actually gets pretty impotent when there's all these reasons to follow Jesus that have nothing to do with Jesus. Like, oh, that's a good church-going person. I should do business with them. But when Jesus sets us apart as the rejects, when Jesus actually, when there's a little bit of cultural hit that happens, when we align ourselves with him and what God's word says, then it actually is compelling in a different way. Because there's no logical reason to do that unless, of course, Jesus himself is compelling and true. And that's where we're offensive, but in a really attractive way, in a way that draws people in and says, you're not saying what everybody else is saying, but you do have kind of a joy and a peace that I've not really ever experienced among other people. See, uh, we have the joy of, I have the joy of being part of a pastoral or preaching team. And, and, and that means I get to study with Pastor Dean and Pastor Derek over in Superior, and we're all preaching the same passage. And one of the things that we talk about sometimes in our pastor or our preaching meeting is, is what is the burden that God is placing on your heart? What is it that you really want people to see? And, and what God was placing on, on my heart and Derek's heart was that, hey, Love it or hate it, the gospel turns the world upside down. But what was really on Pastor Dean's heart this week is we got to help people become more resilient. That there is a cost to following Jesus. We need to help people be more resilient and to help them to understand that that, that is normative in Christian history. Because if our expectations are that we come to Jesus and everything in our life just goes swimmingly here on out, we're going to be disappointed. Most likely, those expectations will not be met, and it won't be Jesus' fault. 
It'll be a misplaced expectation or an unrealistic expectation. Married people know all about those, okay? Actually, all of us know all about those. Here's the thing. There is actually more persecution going on now than ever before. You can go to countries like India, and in May, four Christians in the Mantar region of India were killed for their faith. One was beheaded. Four of them were shot. At the end of May, a Christian woman in Egypt was kidnapped and is yet to be found. Probably she's been forced to marry a Muslim and is living that way just because she's a Christian. But, but I want you to know that, that persecution is not just an over there kind of thing. It, it's, it's here, coming soon to a job near you. A, a little over a year ago, I was in Leadership Duluth. It's something that the chamber puts on that kind of helps you understand the city and how to lead within the context of the city. And in many ways, it was a really good experience. But in a lot of ways, it was a great experience because I got to experience some of the corporate diversity training that many of you have to face weekly. Now, let me say, I believe that everybody should be treated with kindness and dignity and respect, regardless of their belief system. We don't want to bully anybody or be a jerk to anybody. But people's, of toler people, people's understanding of tolerance has, has shifted way beyond tolerating people that are different than, than each other. It's actually now a forced validation or celebration that everybody's beliefs are equally valid. Unless, of course, they cut across the, the overarching cultural narrative. It becomes very clear in many of those environments that if you hold a different opinion, saying on maybe how we identify ourselves or what is true or what is good, you are more than welcome not to share it. And to do so might put many of your jobs at risk or at least your hope of advancement. Now, those who have worked in academia have known this for a long time. To out yourself as a Christian often is to receive the scorn and the, the mockery of other people. But more and more, even in the most businessy of corporate settings, we realize that there is an overarching cultural narrative that simply Christians cannot affirm. But to not affirm that out loud puts you at odds and causes you to... Um, at least lose some cultural clout. Now, I'm not saying that's the same as being beheaded. It's not. It's not. It's a little price to pay. But it is also a price to pay. It is also warning us or reminding us that the, that the temperature is, is rising. And here's what I want you to say. You need to expect that. That's just where our world is. And so be resilient and don't be surprised by it. And here's the thing. Underneath all of that, realize that Jesus is still worth it. He is. He's true. He's the Savior. God loves you so much in him. And if there's no other reason to follow Jesus other than Jesus himself, he's still worth it. Now, what that also reminds us is that not only are we called to live this way as individuals, but if we're going to live this way as individuals, we need each other more than ever, don't we? We need to encourage each other. We need to, to pick each other up. We might need to even uh, help each other out if it actually costs someone a job. Now, I'm not saying that you have the license to be a jerk, but I am saying that you do have to stand up for your convictions from time to time. And so we're going to need each other as the world gets more and more hostile to Jesus. But guys, this is no different than most of human history. The gospel of Jesus turns the world upside down. Love it or hate it, it turns the world upside down. 
And yet, I got to believe that when we live out the reality that Jesus is worth it, there's something so beautiful about that that draws people in. That's the kind of church I want to be part of. I bet you do too. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for how it shapes and forms and provokes and challenges us. I pray, God, that you would help us to be discerning, to love your word, to to allow the upside-down nature of your kingdom to turn our lives upside down. And Lord, I pray that as things get a little bit more hostile, that you would give us boldness and sensitivity, that you would help us to be winsome and willing to suffer. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.